Blessings in Jesus, dear friends. My name is James Jacob Prash, coming to you from Moriel Ministries. Exodus chapter 18, verse 1. Oh, sorry. I will be in Belfast the first weekend of uh, November at Agape Christian Fellowship, Orangeville Crescent, with Pastor uh, Marty Foster in Belfast. Orangefield Crescent Agape Christian Fellowship. The details will be posted shortly on the website. I will also be speaking in Newton Abbey with Pastor Stephen Trimble at Calvary uh, Pentecostal Church, Pastor Stephen Trimble, on the Thursday, on the Thursday before the weekend. That will be in the beginning of November. Exodus 18. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, Yithro, Yithro, He's called Yitro in Hebrew. Now, what is very interesting is the people you saw protesting in Syria on the news yesterday are known as Druzis. There are Druzis in the mountains in Lebanon, whose leader was Wali Shumbat. There's Druzis in Syria, and there are Druzis in Israel. The Druzis in Israel are very loyal to Israel. They serve in the military. M many very good soldiers, but a lot of military commanders and senior officers are Druzis. They have a warlike culture. <clears throat> the Druzis in Lebanon do not like Syria. They do not like the Assad regime, but the Druzis in Syria itself are protesting. They're having a horrible time economically and otherwise because of the Putin-backed Assad regime, and they're protesting. Now, they have their own religion. Uh, they're not Muslims. Strictly speaking, they're not exactly Arabs, although they speak Arabic. They <clears throat> have a religion that's quite mystical almost. They don't have written books per se. The old men, and they these are people who live to be close to 100 years old for genetic reasons, they have extremely long longevity. Men in their 90s to 100 tell the next generation of men who are in their, say, 75 to 90, <laughs> the secrets and the tenets of the religion. Well, a few Jewsies have gotten saved. And we know from Jewsies have gotten saved bits and pieces. But remember, the ordinary Jewsies don't know all the secrets of the religion either. You have to be one of these very old men to know it. But one of the things they tell us is the reason that these Druzies wear very baggy bell-bottom trousers. Um, but it's not just the bell-bottom. The whole thing is a bell. It's it's very... They look like the, the Zwoop soldiers of France of the 19th century. It's because they believe when the Messiah comes, men are going to have babies. They also don't mourn out of death. When If an, a Druzy Israeli soldier in the IDF is killed in combat, they don't mourn. They believe when one Druze dies, another one is automatically born. They have their own version of reincarnation. But somehow, somehow, and nobody knows how because they won't tell you, they say their prophet, what Moses is to the Jews or Jesus is to Christians, Jethro is to them, the father-in-law of Moses, Jethro is to them. And the grave of Jethro, by tradition, is uh, a religious holy site protected by the Ministry of Religious Affairs in Israel 
on behalf of the Israeli Jewish, Jews community. They looked to Jethro. So Jethro was not just an ancient figure. He's very much a current figure in terms of his religious significance to a very important sector of the Israeli community and of the Middle East community, the Jewsies of Lebanon, Syria, and Galilee. They live in Galilee. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. He is living now in the wilderness of Midian, Sinai somewhere, or Arabia. He is there, yet he knows what happened. That tells us that there were caravan routes, that there were we know there were fishing villages along the coast of the Dead Sea where people had communication with mainstream Egypt. It was not totally unknown what had happened. It was known to other civilizations. Additionally, there were other people who came into that region, such as the Amalekites, as we saw last week, who had a war, a battle with the Israelites. So it was not this idea of you're so remote, nobody knows anything. You're cut off from the rest of civilization. Obviously, there was no modern communication, but things that happened were known. Now, it is an interesting thing if you've spent any time in the Middle East, if, if you've been to the Negev or to Jordan, you meet Bedouins. And Bedouins still very much live the way they did in biblical times, if you can believe it, with the tents and the Caravans going from oasis to oasis and so forth. Interesting, the Israeli Bedouins are also loyal to Israel and serve in the military, even though they are Muslims. So, Bedouins, word of mouth is everything. They like to sit around and drink coffee after a day of herding their sheep and camels and whatever they do. They like to hang around and drink coffee. And, and, and talk about the latest news or the latest things. In fact, biblical anthropologists have studied the music of, of these people because they believe it gives an insight, a clue harmonically into the musical preludes of the Psalms of, da of, of David. You know, what is a didactic Psalm and what is a Shiga'on? Shiga'on comes from the Hebrew word what well, was related to the Hebrew word meshugah, crazy, a wild, dispassionate melody. And there are biblical uh, um, anthropologists who have studied the culture of these still existing people to gain insights into the ancient Near East. It is quite fascinating. Things have changed very little in some of these cultures. Well, Mo Moses' father-in-law was an important figure, and his heritage remains one, at least as it's believed. I'm not sure he believed what the Druzies believed. I suspect he didn't. But somehow this developed over a period of centuries into their religion, and they trace it to him. We go on. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away. Now this goes back to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Remember, Moses protected 
the family of Jethro in Exodus chapter 2, when we first began studying Exodus. And he had a good reputation and a good relationship with um, the family of Jethro. He escapes to Midian. And there was a priest of Midian, who we know to be Jethro, who had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and so forth. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them. And when they came to Ruel, their father. Now, Ruel, it could mean looking at God, but he was a priest, a priest of Midian, also known as Jethro, as Jethro, the father of the same woman, Zipporah, whose name has to do with, with bird, bird, tzif the, the Hebrew uh, um, slang term for a bird is a tzitzit, or tziporah, sipor. Now, it's it's interesting. The pronunciation has to be made very carefully in Hebrew because the word for story and the word for bird and a, a word for tzipor, for, for cutting hair, sound almost the same, sound almost the same. That is, of course, a problem in most Oriental languages. So many words sound the same, you have to pronounce them exactly correctly, otherwise you'll use the wrong term. I remember I was with my wife at that time, my girlfriend, at a restaurant in Jerusalem called Pfefferberg's, and it was a Ashkenazi diasporic European Jewish food type restaurant called Pfefferberg's. Nice restaurant, good food, but Pfefferberg's. And I went in there and I wanted a spoon for some soup. And I <laughs> I asked the waiter for a monkey. <laughs> kof, <laughs> kof, 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 kof. <laughs> uh, the words sound almost the same. Kaf, kof, kaf, kof. And then you can get the word for box. They sound almost the same. I wanted a spoon and I asked for a monkey. And my wife just sat there, well, my girlfriend then, just sat there laughing at me. She just wouldn't stop laughing at me. And the waiter the waiter knew what I meant. Right? I just didn't know Hebrew that well in those days. I mean, I knew, but not, there's knowing and there's knowing. And I, I felt like a real idiot. And the giggles, if not hysterics of my bride-to-be made it worse. <laughs> so it is. Sipora, Sipora. Her name has to do with some kind of a bird. Now, again, in the Bible, names are important. Names are important. Looking at birds in the desert, in the wilderness, can be an indication of direction if you know the seasons of their migration patterns. They help in navigation. And because birds have a bird's eye view, birds can tell you where an oasis might be, where the birds are going to. When you see a bird descending, why are they descending? Is there an oasis? Is there water? This is important. All of these things came into play in the experience of Moses. Now, remember, Moses spent, Moses spent 40 years in the same wilderness. We've talked about this in our earlier Bible studies in in, in Exodus, 
God spent as much time preparing him to lead the nation through this wilderness as it took him to lead the nation through this wilderness. 40 and 40. 40 and 40. Now, of course, God was preparing him spiritually, but God was also preparing him practically to know about desert survival. And he did that. So there he is, Zipporah, and his, her father was a priest of Midian. Now there's a term, monolatry. The term theologians use is monolatry. Monolatry is neither monotheism, nor is it idolatry. Monolaters believe there are many gods. They are polytheistic. They believe there is a multitude of gods, but they worship one. They worship the supreme one or the one they believe to be supreme. It would appear that Jethro was that. Remember, Romans tell us when the Gentiles do instinctively what they know by nature, we're magio dei beings who are made in God's image and likeness. People can know there's one true God. They can know there's one true God. People can know that idolatry and polytheism per se are wrong, that only one God is to be worshipped because we're made in his image and likeness. This would also account perhaps for people like in the story of Balaam and Balak. And Balaam and Balak, they knew there was this one true God, even though they believed there were other gods, they worshipped one. Monolatry. Monolatry. Jethro was a monolatry. Jethro's father-in-law took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he sent her away. And her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for he said he's been a sojourner in a foreign land. That's what Gershom means. And the other, Eleazar, which means my God is my help. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, formerly known as Ruel, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was camped at the Mount of God, the Mount of the one true God. This would be Horeb. It is where the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, would be given and where Moses would have his encounter with God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. There was a hiatus in the family relationship. There was a temporary separation because of what Moses had to do. God may call somebody to separate from their family for a while for the sake of the ministry. But he never calls on people to leave their family for the sake of the ministry. He never calls on someone to leave their family for the sake of the ministry. Preachers may be itinerant. People may go on short-term mission activities. I know medical missionaries, they go for six months to the third world and they can't bring their family with them for various reasons. Well, God may call somebody to 
separate with their family temporarily. But he's not going to call them to leave their family permanently. It just doesn't work that way in God's economy. Paul alludes to this, or makes some reference to this when he said, let he who has a wife as if he had none. That doesn't mean you ignore your wife. It just means that you put God first. And if you are going to separate from your wife, you better be hearing from the Lord to do it. And it better be temporary, not permanent. You don't leave your wife for the sake of the ministry. There have been people in the history of the church that have done that. And I believe it has marred their own legacies. Moses, however, did not do that. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was camped at the Mount of God. This is before the Ten Commandments were given. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons. He's got his grandchildren and his daughter. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of the welfare, of their welfare, and he went into the tent. One an Israelite, one a Midianite, but a bond and a family bond and a love between them. Remember, segregation of the Israelites from other nations was based on which God do you worship, not based on ethnicity. We are later told that Moses' other wife was a black woman, a Kushit, a Kushite. But we'll come to that when we get to that. Let's look. They inquire of the welfare of each other. They're in the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. He heard some of it. He knew some of what happened. But now he was going to get the whole story directly from the lips of Moses himself, his son-in-law. And that God did it for the sake of Israel. And all the hardship that had befallen them and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. Pay attention. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. It is true Israel is an elect nation. It is true that God made his covenant with them. Both covenants, the old and the new, are made with Israel and the Jews. That is all true. However, while the covenants belong to them and the election of God was with them, other nations or peoples of other nations, the Goyim, the ethnon in Greek, who worshipped the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, benefit from those covenants. Israel was God's instrument to bring blessing. The covenants with the Jews, 
but non-Jews can be grafted in by faith in the Messiah. Again, Abraham was a Gentile. God converted to Judaism. Jesus had non-Jews in his ancestry, according to the genealogies of the gospel. Other nations benefit from God's dealing with the Jews. Today, other nations will benefit, will benefit if they make peace with Israel. They'll benefit. The water, technology, not having to spend so much on defense, they will benefit. Other nations can and will benefit. But if you hate Israel, it's because you have a problem with the God of Israel. And what should be a blessing will become a curse. The church benefits from the covenant promise to Israel. Christians benefit from the covenant promises to Israel and the Jews. However, as we know, Jews who reject their own Messiah lose the benefit until and unless they repent and accept it but we've talked about this many times. Jethro rejoiced over the goodness which God had done to Israel. The rebirth of Israel, the desert blossoming, the regathering of the Jews, I rejoice over what God is doing. Now, I know it's coming to the time of Jacob's trouble. They're going to make a covenant with death. They're going to be deceived by the Antichrist. That Talmudic Judaism is a false religion rejecting its Messiah. I recognize all of those things in God's prophetic agenda. I know what's coming. But I also know that when Jesus comes back, he's coming as king of the Jews to set up his millennial kingdom. I rejoice. I rejoice at the regathering of Israel because Jesus made it clear they'd have to be back in their land and in their capital for him to return. Luke 12, 21, Matthew 23, 39 to 40, Zechariah 12, 1 to 10, etc. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Remember, he was a monolater. He believed there were other gods, but he worshipped one. Through God's dealing with the Israelites, via Moses, his son-in-law, Jethro was reinforced in his conviction that the God he was worshipping, of whom he was a priest, was the one true one, that he is the God above other gods. I know the Lord is greater than all gods. Now, of course, this was something that could become easily convoluted, particularly in the ancient world, because they would conflate angelic beings as gods or as minor gods. That could happen. This was a problem. When these other nations who were polytheistic, they, they saw angelic beings as other gods. 
And that continues to this day. Um, the satanic verses in Islam. It's amazing that the Muslims wanted to murder Salman Rushdie for simply writing a book about something that Muslim scholars have known for centuries. That Muhammad said that these three idols were birds of intercession. In Hinduism, these are the gods. Well, they're angelic beings, only they are, of course, fallen angelic beings. We call them demons. Moses called them Shadim. Paul called them Damanoi. Other gods are demons. It doesn't say they're not gods. It just says that they're demons. The one true God is Yahweh. Satan, however, is called, even by Jesus, the God of this world. There are other gods, but there's only one true one. But in the mentality of the ancient Near East, they would conflate, confuse these lesser deities with angelic beings. This is also a problem in New Age and in Gnosticism with something called demiurges, demiurges. But I'm not going to go there now. Again, it's one of those things I just throw out in passing for information's sake. So you can see why Paul and Moses call these other gods demons. Well, they, they, they are. They're gods, but they're demons. They're lesser gods in the mentality of the people. Now, you would see in the book of Revelation, when these angels were there, the angels would tell them, don't bow down to me. Don't bow down to me. Some of the angels reflected divine characteristics, like Gabriel, Gabriel, the mighty one of God, or Michael, Michael, he who was like unto God. They reflected divine characteristics, but they were not God. So the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, you see a effort or a intent, not an effort, an intent to clear up the confusion, to dispel this mixed idea of angelic beings being considered to be gods. Elim. El is God, but Elim is the word for idols. In Hebrew. Well, they thought of angels as lesser gods in the ancient Near East. The book of Revelation tries to clarify the reality, or it does clarify the reality. Okay. I know that your God is the right one. Verse 11. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. God's dealing with Israel proved he was the right and one true one. Then Moses' father-in-law took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. Notice he's worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Aaron, the high priest, came with the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is known as a suzerainty ritual, a suzerainty ritual. The New Testament concept of an agape, a fellowship meal, when we take the Lord's Supper, derives from this cultural tradition. The Paschal Seder was a fellowship meal coming from the concept of suzerainty, of a covenant meal. 
But you see here right away, Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, worshiping together the one true God, Yehoah, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they came, and Aaron came with the elders of Israel from the tribes, and they, they did it. They worshipped, and they had a sacrifice. And it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until evening. They were driving him crazy. Every dispute, every question, they would drive him crazy. In some minute degree, I can relate to this on a much, much smaller level, my microcosmic level of this. I get people all the time, sometimes a couple a day, certainly a couple of weeks, coming to me with disputes and issues about churches and this and that and my husband this and family that and my pastor that. And I say, look, I cannot give pastoral advice or counsel people I don't even know. And I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. All I can tell you is what the Bible says doctrinally. That's all. I can tell you what the Bible says doctrinally, but I, I cannot apply that to your given situation necessarily. I don't know the circumstances of the people or talk to both sides. But people can't find a good pastor, a good church, and they come to me with these issues all the time. Now, there are people in Moriel who help me, who filter a lot of it out. But people can... It's, it's like medical science. It's why I could never practice medicine. There are people who need your time and attention, and there's other people there who just want your time and attention. I have no problem answering serious questions that people have. We have Q&A times. But when it's somebody who is... a person who would rather email you or call you personally and want you to get back to them. Instead of listening to a recorded teaching we already have answering the question on the internet, which they can download for free or watch a video they can download for free or read a book or an article I've written. If the answer's already out there in the public domain, but they still want a private tutorial because they don't want to read for whatever reason. Well, we usually tell them we refer you to this tape. We refer you to that article. I couldn't possibly answer all these things. And either could Moriel, even though Marco and David and people helped me, it's not always easy. There are people who just want a private tutorial. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Look, I've already taught this. It's on the tape. It's in the book. It's whatever. Read the article. Now, there's people who really need your help, but there's other people who are only there to consume your time that prevents you from spending it on the people who need your help. Well, I've experienced this to a small degree compared to Moses. He had to deal with it every day from morning to night, one dispute, one question, one issue after another.
from morning until evening in verse 13. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw all, saw all he was doing for the people, he said, what's this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Now notice, this was before the Decalogue was given. It was before the law was given. It was before the Torah was given. But even then, people knew the moral law of God. You get this question that's addressed in Heb in Romans. Well, what about the native on the island who never heard the gospel? How could God send him to hell? If he didn't... People can know there's one true God, and they can know the moral law. They can know they don't want anybody sleeping with their wife or their husband. Therefore, they shouldn't sleep with the wife or husband of another person. They don't want to get robbed. Therefore, they should know they shouldn't steal from others. They don't want to get murdered. Therefore, they should not murder some other person. They don't want to be lied against. Therefore, they shouldn't lie against other people and so on and so on and so on. The moral law is there. Now, this is not natural theology in the patristic sense or in the medieval sense, but it is a natural theology in the biblical sense. We're made in God's image and likeness, and we can morally know basic right from wrong. This was before the law was given. So Moses here is telling things to people that in many cases, at least, they should have already known, or at least known in part, but they're wearing him out. And remember, he's in his 80s now. And Moses' father-in-law said to him in verse 17, the thing you're doing is not good. This is not good, Moses. You'll wear yourself out. What good are you going to be to the Lord and to the nation if you wear yourself out? Burnout. Burnout is real. The scripture says there's burnout. Both yourself and these people who are with you. Burnout. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, I shall give you counsel, and God be with you. You shall be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Notice what's happening here. God is giving wisdom to this Midianite priest. Moses receives wise counsel. Even before the law was given, God was using Jethro to make Moses know there needs to be a codified body of statute, the Torah. 
the Deuteronomic legislation. God was preparing Moses to receive the Torah and give it to the people. Through the council of Jethro. Teach them the statutes and the laws, even though they're not written yet. Well, they're going to be. Make known to them the way in which they are to walk. Now, the idea of the way, the way, this is the way. Torah means that. That's what Torah means. It's the way. The way you should go. The way to God. The way God wants you to go. Torah. <coughs> God is preparing to give the Torah. <coughs> and he's giving Jethro wisdom to counsel Moses. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. Whenever a fellowship, a church, a congregation, a ministry looks for leaders, do they fear God? It's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do they adhere to the truth, right doctrine? And do they hate dishonest gain, sordid gain? Are they in the ministry simply to line their own pockets or something like this? Look at those three things. The fear of the Lord, the upholding and embracing of truth. And a hatred, a hatred of dishonest material or financial gain. You shall place them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Of house group leaders, of youth groups, of Bible study groups, deacons, elders. But they have to meet the same criteria. God-fearing, embracers of truth, and a hatred of dishonest gain. If those three things are there, they're not candidates for leadership. Someone may begin as a leader of 10, then of 50, then of 100. Let them judge the people at all times. Now understand the meanings of these numbers. Ten has to do with the minyan. A minyan. We have a teaching on Genesis 18 and 19 on the rescue of Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Where you get the basis of the minyan. Orthodox Jews will not have a prayer service or they cannot take the Torah scrolls out of the cabinet Unless you have 10 bar mitzvah circumcised Jewish males. A minyan is 10. This goes to Abraham saying, if I find 10 men, will you destroy it? 10 is the minimum. Okay, that was to be accepted by the Lord. 50s. Remember, Jesus had the people sit down and they were fed in groups of 50s. The sons of the prophets were in a group of 50, remember? Groups of 50s. 50 is a good size for a, a church, 
If a church gets to be more than 50, maybe they need to see about planting another church. <laughs> Those who live on this side of town go over there. Now they can all come together once in a while and meet all together for sure. We'll go rent a, a theater or something like that. But 50s seem to be a good number to feed people. A good number to feed people are groups of 50s. There's a number of problems with megachurches, although they also can have positive aspects. But people are best fed in groups of 50s. Fellowship takes place best in groups of 10. Teaching takes place best in groups of 50s. And then, of course, it works its way up to hundreds and thousands to the whole, whole church. Bearing in mind, in the New Testament, a church did not equal a congregation. We see this, for instance, in Colossians. Paul is talking to the congregation at Colossae. But a few miles from Colossae, you can walk the distance even today. You can walk it if you're a good walker. He says, the brethren in Laodicea. Colossians was written not only to the Colossians, it was written to people in nearby churches, including Laodicea. So you have the church in that particular area. But there were congregations, both in Colossae, and there were congregations in nearby towns or cities like Laodicea. He says this in Colossians chapter 4. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that's in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodicea. The Christian community at large in an area was bigger, but the fellowships were smaller. Minions, groups of 50s, then bigger. I don't say that's a fixed model, but it is a fixed principle. It is a fixed principle. Now let's look in Exodus 18. Verse 22, let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Now, there are at least two aspects of this. First of all, you don't need bail to be set by a high court judge. Bail can be set by a local magistrate or an arraignment. You don't have to go to the Supreme Court for a formal judicial procedure. Well, it's the same thing. Leave the pastor alone. Go to one of the elders first. Now, if it's an issue that's doctrinal or complicated, the elder will bring it to the pastor if the church is of that size. Okay, You're going to wear the guy out. And in the long term, it'll wear the fellowship out. Jethro was right. And God put this in his word.
a major dispute will generally tend to be something that has a doctrinal element or aspect to it. So it'll be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. Again, be careful of one-man shows. The senior elder, the pastoral elder, is the primus inter paris. He's the first among equals. But on a baseball team, you got a pitcher, a catcher, a first base, a shortstop, etc. Outfield. No man plays all the positions. You've got the manager and you got the team. The manager cannot go out and cover all the bases and play the outfield and pitch and catch at the same time. If you do this thing, and God so commands in verse 23, you'll be able to endure all the people and also will go to their place in peace, in fullness. You'll be able to stand. If you get this stuff and you're continually bombarding one man, one aspect is it is bad for him. It'll wear him out. It might inflate his ego and pride, make him a control freak because you're making him a control freak, not necessarily because he is a despot who wants to be. There are many problems when you do this. Now, another aspect is it's how God trains leaders. Bible colleges and seminary may have their value if God leads you to go to one but it does not qualify somebody for the ministry. And neither does not having a theological degree or academic credentials disqualify somebody from the ministry as long as they can doctrinally rightly divide the word. No one denies the advantages of knowing the biblical languages and so forth, but that doesn't make you qualified. Begin as a house group leader. Then, as a Bible study group teacher, then an elder, senior elder, pastor, it is a way to work people up, just like in the military. Nobody becomes a brigade commander. They begin as a platoon commander, then a company commander. Then they, be, they become a battalion commander, then a regimental commander. You got a long way before you become a brigade commander or a division commander or a corps commander, step by step. It's how God trains leaders. It's how God feeds sheep. It's how God engenders fellowship. Tens, fifties, hundreds. Then you can get to the mega church, thousands. But if you got a church with thousands, the people need to be getting fed in groups of 50s and they need to be in house groups of 10s. And they judge the people at all times, the difficult disputes they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell and he went his way into his own land. Jethro to Midian Moses to the promised land and Jethro's daughter and grandchildren going off with him.
God is preparing Moses to receive the law by first making him know there is a need for the law and how the law is most efficiently and effectively applied by the leadership. God is showing that there is fellowship between Jew or Hebrew, as it were then, and non-Jew, as long as they have the same faith and the same God. They shared the same sacrifice. So in Christ, Jew, Gentile, there's one sacrifice, the cross. Spiritually, there's no difference. Culturally, there's a difference. Covenantally, there's, there's differences, but there's an engrafting into the covenant. It was always supposed to be like that. Now, in the New Testament, these things are revealed clearly in Christ, but the shadows of it are always in the Old Testament. And we see that here in Exodus. We also see the reality of the dangers that will happen when you have ineffective and inefficient methods of leadership. These things are not doctrinally decreed as such, but they are doctrinally prescribed in terms of the principles, the smaller groups, the larger groups, the next one, the end, and of the plurality of elders. This is important. This prepares the way for the giving of the Decalogue and the law and the Torah in its totality of 613 commandments.